God's holy and inspired word given to us as people from the Old Testament. Amos 5, beginning in verse 18. God's word. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer to me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring me, to, did, did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikuth, your king, and Kiun, your star god, your images that you have made for yourselves. And I will send you in exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. As for the reading of God's word, may bless it to us. So in our lives, we hold to plenty of popular notions or common values that we were basically born into. That is, we believe such an idea or value the things basically self-evident. That is, we've given very little to no thought about it. These are things like turkey is for Thanksgiving, cars are better than public transportation, And as Americans, we know that football is superior to soccer. To hold otherwise is basically unpatriotic. And the same can happen with the church, with our faith. Jesus was born on Christmas. Man has free will. Adam was a vegetarian. But then, as we are studying scripture, we bump into the truth that pops our assumed opinion we come into contact with the full teaching of the word and it exposes the error of that popular notion. Now, such an experience can be jarring, freeing, or make us react with a knee-jerk denial. No way, it cannot be. That can't be true. Well, this is what Amos does to the Israelites that he's preaching to. He flips on its head a widely held and precious doctrine. And as he does for them, there's a chance he will do the same for us. So Amos opens this new section with a cry of woe, which is basically a pronouncement of death. You utter woe at a funeral to lament one who died, or you declare it against someone who will soon be dead. And this woe links verse 18 back to two items Amos just relayed. In verse 14, he ordered Israel to seek good so that the Lord may be with you as you have claimed. Israel says that the Lord is with them, but he's actually not. They need to repent and do what is right before God will be with them. 
Thus, Israel is self-deluded when it comes to the Lord's disposition towards them. Remember, Amos is ministering in a time of peace and prosperity. The northern kingdom recently won a bunch of battles. They conquered significant amounts of real estate, and on the heels of so much kingdom expansion, the economy is booming. It's a good time to be alive in Israel. Thus, the Israelites read the success as the Lord's blessing, as God with them. My barn is full, God with us. My business is thriving, God with us. Amos, though, steps on their toes. You can claim this all you want, but it doesn't make it true. And so this is the first point of background for this woe. The Israelites' mistaken confidence that is that the Lord is all smiles and blessings toward them. The second comes in verse 17, when the Lord said, I will pass through your midst. Now, this line is a reference to the tenth plague on Egypt, the death of the firstborn on the night of the first Passover. There, as the destroyer, the Lord passed through the land, and it erupted in wailing and lamentation. Well, as he did to Egypt of old, so the Lord will again do unto his own people. And these form the foundation of the Lord's cry of woe against those who desire the day of the Lord. Though this desire is creepier, this has the sense of lusting for craving and coveting. They salivate for the day of the Lord like a kid for candy. It's not healthy. But why is their craving so hot-blooded? Well, the day of the Lord was a widespread concept, and it was a very popular theology among them. For this was when the Lord visited his people with his miraculous and theophanic presence. And the common conception was that this divine visitation was all rainbows and golden pots. Yahweh would come and throw candy from his chariot like a beauty queen in a parade. The bloated prosperity of the people would only swell to greater levels of obesity. The people wantonly craved the day of the Lord for its lavish pleasures and fine luxuries. Their unchaste eyes were not on the Lord, but on the indulgent riches. Hence, they coveted. Thus, Amos pronounces woe on such green-eyed cravings. He condemns this popular theology, which misses the truth by such a wide margin. Indeed, the day of the Lord, as Amos says, is not light, as all the Israelites assume. It isn't sunrises and beach tans, but it is darkness. The day of the Lord will not be for them smiles and warm parties, but it will be cold fear, and the disaster of the blackest night. It will be the moonless midnight of the Lord's storm cloud of judgment that unleashes panic and doom, calamity and death, mourning, and the icy grip of Sheol. Light symbolizes all that is gracious and merciful from God. Knowledge, life, sweet communion, his smiling face, and so on. 
but pitch dark gloom encapsulates all the terrible fury of God's pitiless retribution. It is the horror of being suffocated by darkness and stabbed by unknown blades. Every Instagram page in Israel shows the same meme for the brightness of the day of the Lord. No one questions that it could be any other way. But Amos interrupts, no, no, no. It is the blackest night with no glimmer. And to make his point even more poignant, Amos gives a comparison. You want to know what the day of the Lord is like? Verse 19. It's like if you ran into a lion and it pounced. Now, this is a nightmare scenario for the lion nearly always wins. But somehow you got away. You outran the lion. You dodged his sharp teeth. Wow, you're feeling lucky. God must be watching over you. But then, as soon as you are safe from the lion, you bump into a bear and it leaps to maul you. An angry bear? This may be worse than a lion. But again, somehow you escape. The claws miss you by a millimeter and you reach your house and shut the door. You survive the bear as well? Man, your luck is on fire. It's time to go to Vegas and win millions. But to catch your breath, you lean your hand on the wall and a viper bites you. Its venom quickly goes through your bloodstream, inflicting death. You perish on the carpet. This is the day of the Lord. For wild beasts were curses of the covenant, and the waves of calamity keep rolling in. Most people fall prey to the lion or get mauled by the bear. But even if you avoid the first few disasters, thinking yourselves favored and blessed, right when you feel safe, it'll get you too. Just when you consider to yourself to be immune, fangs dig into your hand. Escape is illusionary. Safety is a figment. The dark jaws of death will shut on every last soul. This is the wake-up call the Lord delivers through Amos. Desiring the day of the Lord is not what you think it is. Quite the opposite. Thus, they need to correct their theology and fix their lustful cravings. And the Lord continues to reorient the notions of his people by condemning more of their sins. He now turns their crosshairs on their worship. Now, as we've seen, the Israelites were not lacking in the religion department. No one skipped worship. Everybody loved to sacrifice. The churches were full. The offering plates overflowed. And the congregational singing was enthusiastic. But the people and God were not on the same page. What the people loved, the Lord hated. Yes, it says he hated and rejected their feast and assemblies. He was repulsed by their sacrifices and offerings. The Lord's language can't get any stronger. He detests and spews out their worship services and sacrifice. And for the Lord to reject their worship is for him to repudiate the worshiper. If the Lord does not accept your lamb turned into smoke, 
then he doesn't accept you. And your failure to offer a pleasing sacrifice spells out that you've lost your divine protector. It opens you up to an ominous fate, the day of the Lord. The spurned offering is to be personally rebuffed and abandoned. And it isn't just the sacrifices that Yahweh, that make Yahweh want to puke. He's also grossed out by their songs. Yeah, the worship of is, or the worship music of Israel was a big deal. They invested into their song, their best musician, and finest instruments. With harps and trumpets, their melodies were beautiful. Harmonious and lovely, the hymns hummed with notes of reverence, sharps of joy, and flats of doxology. And yet, the Lord has a different ear. What they find melodious and sweet, he hears as clamorous noise. To the Lord, their songs are discordant and screechy, nothing but a cacophonous din of harsh sound. They play the harp, but God only hears an iron nail scraped on glass. Hence, the Lord turns off his senses towards their worship. Literally, it says the Lord will not smell their assemblies. He will not see their sacrifices. He will not hear their praises. This is dire. Worship is about pleasing the senses of God for his favor, pardon, and blessing. The sweet smoke of sacrifice was to tickle his nostrils with delight. Humble prayers caught his smile uh, to shine upon you. And the grateful harmonies filled his ears with pleasure. Worship is delighting the Lord to create sweet communion between us and God. But Israel's worship grossed the Lord out and soured their relationship with estrangement and wrath. Yet the question is, what ruined their worship so badly? They were so zealous and enthusiastic about worship. Isn't this enough? Doesn't the Lord mainly regard one's passion and intention? They meant well, but no. The Lord does not measure only your zeal. You can have full-speed zeal, but if it's not in accord with the truth, then it gains you nothing. Misguided zeal is a strike against you, not for you. Thus, the Lord gives two reasons why their worship is so distasteful. The first is found in verse 24. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Now, as you can recognize, this verse is quite popular today. This is a favorite text for those who would style themselves as social reformers. It's the banner they fly and apply directly to all the current social problems. Thus, it is fitting to ask, If this verse is used well, what does this poetic couplet mean? Well, to begin with, the Lord calls for justice and righteousness to flow as water, as a perennial stream that never goes dry. Excuse me. 
And as is clear, this image of flowing water is the life-giving fruitfulness of covenant beatitude. To be planted by a stream of water is to enjoy everlasting life with God. This is a utopic picture of covenant communion with God. Therefore, the duty of justice and righteousness brings forth paradise life with the Lord in the well-being of the covenant. But what is this obligation of justice and righteousness? Well, this pair, justice and righteousness, is a motif throughout the Old Testament with huge significance. Thus, first, justice and righteousness is applied to God himself. He does everything in justice and righteousness. His throne is established in justice and righteousness. This pair magnifies the moral perfection of God, and it describes his upright governance in all he does. Secondly, this pair summarizes comprehensive obedience to the whole law and total devotion to the Lord. The perfect human does justice and righteousness. Thus, the moral excellence of this person is described in the following way in other parts of Scripture. The person who does justice and righteousness, they do not worship idols. They do not swear by the names of other gods. They avoid adultery and are sexually pure. They do not steal or oppress. They show charity to the needy. They do not lend out at interest. They do what is fair and right between man and man. This pair does not just include neighborly justice, but it also covers idolatry and sexual purity. Justice and righteousness, then, is the total obedience that earns covenant life and blessing. Third, and finally, this pair is particularly applied to the king. David did justice and righteousness. Solomon prayed for wisdom to do justice and righteousness. In fact, under the Davidic covenant, as the people failed to do justice and righteousness, the king, as their representative and head, is to do it for them. The king performs justice and righteousness for the people to earn for them what they could not attain for themselves. Hence, after the exile, the Lord promised his people a new and greater king who would fulfill all justice and righteousness for the people. God would grant justice and righteousness to the people through the king to usher them into the paradise of the covenant. Thus, this, thus why is Israel's worship so odious? Because their obedience is horrendous. They're bankrupt in justice and righteousness. And with this proper understanding of the verse, it is clear that this cannot apply to the common grace state. To employ this for social reform is a wrong and harmful application. For God did not make the Mosaic Covenant with America or any other nation other than Israel, and only for a time. The Lord does not promise secular states utopic blessings. 
Moreover, the Lord does not reward a nation according to its national piety. However, you can even measure such a thing. The nations are under the Noahic covenant where the Lord didn't promise paradise. Instead, he promised to sustain life amid the topsy-turvy chaos of the common curse. And the Lord promised in Noah to sustain despite the fact of the impiety of humans. The Lord will keep sending rain and sunshine despite a nation's wickedness. Thus, history is dotted with evil nations that prospered, powerful, and long. Now, sure, there's still general intrinsic consequences for sinful behavior. A slothful culture experiences ruin. Sexually perverse communities suffer STDs and childlessness. But God gives no clear covenantal quid pro quo between a nation's, quote, righteousness and their prosperity. Similarly, in terms of the enduring moral law, there is overlap between justice and righteousness and natural law. The sins of murder, theft, and corrupting courts with lies and bribes, these are binding today as they were under Moses. But justice and righteousness is the ideal that includes pure worship, fear of the Lord, and love of God. Under natural law, the Lord actually overlooks idolatry of the nations for a time. Yet this is never overlooked in justice and righteousness. Thus, therefore, this verse is calling Israel to complete obedience to earn life under the covenant of Moses. Their worship stinks because they're void of righteousness. You cannot pay God off with sacrifices while living in wickedness. As it says elsewhere, to do justice and righteousness is more desired by Yahweh than sacrifice. But there is a second reason why God hates their worship. Reason one is verse 24, and reason two is verses 25 and 26. The Lord brings up their worship now during the 40 years of desert wanderings. What offerings and sacrifices did they offer during this period? Well, what is the standout scene of worship in the desert? It was the golden calf of Aaron. And what sits presently in Bethel at the National Shrine? A golden calf made by Jeroboam to copy the one of Aaron. Their worship is detestable because it's idolatrous. Thus, they also worship astral deities. Sekuth and Kuyun are star gods from Babylon and Assyria. Yahweh is not the only name they call upon at Bethel, but they also show reverence to the stars. Therefore, for their lack of total lack of justice and righteousness, and for their idolatry, God will execute on them the full curse of the covenant, exile. They will be cast out from God's presence to be forsaken and abandoned by God. Remember, exile was symbolic of that everlasting condemnation of hell. 
It pictures the just deserves for sinners, for those who lack justice and righteousness and who walk in idolatry. Exile is the full darkness of the day of the Lord. Thus, in this, we see once again the wages of sin. We come face to face with what we deserve for our own sins and for being fallen in Adam. Like Israel, we too have no justice and righteousness of our own. Wickedness stains our hands, and as sinners, the day of the Lord is not light but darkness. Without justice and righteousness, there is no other fate. Thus, if we cannot provide justice and righteousness, we need someone else to do it for us. We require another to fulfill ideal justice and righteousness on our behalf, which is precisely what God promised to do through the king. Indeed, the Lord promised that after exile, he would raise up a holy branch of David who would do all justice and righteousness. And the Lord named this king, Yahweh is our righteousness. This name fell on Christ. Jesus fulfilled all justice and righteousness for us. He gave us freely the righteousness of God that we could not do ourselves. Hence, in Stephen's sermon, where he quotes our passage, what is the title that he gives Jesus? The Righteous One. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thus, where did justice and righteousness flow like an ever-flowing stream? It did from Jesus Christ, his active and passive obedience upon the cross. How do we taste of the waters of paradise? By faith in Jesus. By his one righteousness, he made many righteous and alive. Therefore, in your justification, all of grace, Jesus makes the day of the Lord light for you. Indeed, upon Golgotha, Jesus tasted of the darkness of the day of the Lord. In his flesh, Jesus swallowed up darkness that was due to us. Thus covered in the righteousness of Christ, the day of the Lord is light for you. In the hands of Christ, the bright smile of the Father is sealed upon you. Indeed, through Paul, Jesus addresses us as the children of the light, children of the day. As the light of the world, the brilliant beam of Christ made you light. We are not of the night or of darkness, but by his grace, he makes us shine like lights in this crooked and perverse generation. The glory of Christ's truth and love radiates through us in this dark world. As the gift of God, you are the light in the Lord Jesus Christ the everlasting light of that eternal day of heaven. Hence, having been made the light in Jesus, 
we must walk as children of the light. We should emit the bright rays of obedience and godliness in our lives. This includes justice towards our neighbor, sexual purity, and true worship. Taking every thought captive, our theology needs to be true, and it should guide every part of our life in the church, in the home, and in the marketplace. And so being filled with Christ, let your light shine for the good of your neighbor, for the witness of the gospel, and for the building up of the saints. Let Christ's light shine through us. And particularly, may our light shine for the praise of his glorious grace so that all the glory will go to the name above all names, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Amen. Let us pray.